will, and turn to the book of Titus. It's a very brief letter. You'll find it on page 998 in one of the Bibles from the pew. But we're looking at some of the verses from chapter 1 of Titus. Before I read from chapter 1, I I remember uh, years ago going to visit a friend of mine who was serving on the staff of a campus ministry, Campus Crusade for Christ. I was traveling to Boca Raton and by myself driving, and I stopped to visit and spent the night with a, a guy I had gotten to know years before, and he was on staff with Campus Crusade. And the next morning at breakfast, we talked about I was asking him questions about how the ministry was going throughout the state because of several large schools in Florida. And he was telling me that on one of the particular campuses, I believe it was in Miami, that Crusade was pulling all their staff out. And I said, why? And he said, because it is such a difficult uh, place to minister just because people are not interested that the staff, it's it's been like a... uh, a dead end. That staff go there and they get discouraged and they quit. They entirely they quit their jobs. They they leave being on staff with Crusade. And so he said we're closing the work down and they're moving these staff, the few that are left, to other to other campuses. Some places are easier. People are more receptive uh, than others from time to time. This was written to a man who was ministering in a very very difficult place on the island of Crete. I'll tell you more about that in a moment, but follow along with me as we hear God's word beginning in verse 1 of Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, And his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So ends the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. Paul is writing to this man named Titus. And as I mentioned, Titus was in a difficult place to minister. He's on the island of Crete. That is a big island. It's over 150 miles long. And at its widest point, it is 35 miles wide. And there are a number, there were a number of towns scattered all over the island. The Apostle Paul had gone there, he had planted a church, and then he had left Titus to look after the early organizational phases, not only of that congregation, but other congregations that were being started as well. 
because the gospel had only recently been preached on the island, the believers were infants in their faith, and therefore they were susceptible to a number of very negative influences, false teaching, bad leadership. And Titus had to be very vigilant, and he had to work fast, you might say. And the church in Crete needed strong leaders. So it was Titus's responsibility. They weren't passing out forms like this among the members saying appoint people. Titus was to do it. And so he was to appoint and equip and prepare the leadership in the churches, the elders and the deacons. So you, many people say that the, the book of Titus, the letter of Titus, is a manual of doing church. Two preliminary observations before we look more specifically at the passage. There are no perfect churches, as if that needs to be said. My first observation, though, is there are no perfect churches. I served in a church where, one time, where we had a whole network of home Bible studies, and one of the Bible studies came to the leadership and said, we would like our Bible study to be called a New Testament group, as though the others weren't. And I remember some wise insight from the leadership saying, well, which New Testament group do you want to model it after? Corinth? They had their problems. Ephesus? They had their problems. There is no perfect. Uh, when people say we want to be a New Testament church, as though that meant there were perfect churches. There never have been. Then or now, and it's a pretty simple reason, because there's a common denominator between our churches now and then. What is it? Speak to me. Us, sinners. Sinful people that are in those churches. And so Paul says to Titus, I want you to go and put in order. Another way to put it, straighten out. If you're in an office or a, a, on a team and someone says, I've come to straighten some things out. You know they plan to take the chaos or the rebellion or whatever's there and they're going to bring order into this place. That's what Titus was to do. So there are no, there were no perfect churches. With that, there are no perfect church leaders. The leadership qualifications, at least referenced here in this passage in Titus, and there are others in the New Testament, these qualifications never assume perfection. They do not assume extraordinary human talents or giftedness. We find nothing about sinlessness being on this. We see nothing about people who have never failed. So the conclusion then is God uses imperfect churches with imperfect leaders to accomplish his will and to expand his kingdom. God uses, still does, leadership. Humans did not organize the church. This is God's structure to have spiritual shepherds in each local congregation. Because leadership always works, sometimes negatively, sometimes positively, but it always works. How many of you have seen the National Geographic documentary Restrepo? Have any of y'all seen that? Good night. The, the first service, about a quarter of the people had seen, seen that. I assume it's on this weekend, being Memorial Day weekend. It was made in 2004. It's about an Army fire base in Afghanistan that was there called Restrepo, named after a medic that was killed that was part of their platoon. It was a documentary made by Sebastian Junger, who wrote The Perfect Storm, along with a noted filmmaker who has since died. They were with the 2nd Platoon of Battle Company for 15 months during their, their deployment 
in a particular valley in northeast Afghanistan. And that valley at the time was called by many the deadliest place on earth. And that's where they were. So the mission of this company, this particular second platoon, a battle company, was to clear the valley of insurgency and to gain the trust of the local population. Now, in the latter part of the film, I watched the entire thing probably a year ago, and I want to see it again, they document a very particular, very dangerous mission called Operation Rock Avalanche. And there were tragic consequences that came from that, dead civilians, dead soldiers, and the emotional distress on the, on the soldiers themselves uh, was horrendous. But with this platoon, over that 15-month period, it was not unusual, now hear this, for every day to be in four to six firefights. Every day. So you never knew where it was coming from, when it was coming, which direction. And every time the soldiers were in a crisis, my observation was, what delivered them from that crisis was not superior firepower, though they were well-armed. Uh, it was not because they were necessarily smarter than the enemy. It came through good leadership. In every case, it was good leadership. The person or persons they were answering to were wise and led them well. Now, that's true in the church. Our effectiveness to First Presbyterians' effectiveness to fill our role in fulfilling the Great Commission will be God working through good leadership by the power of his Holy Spirit. I don't mean to say it's just human effort. So Titus is to appoint elders, and he's to look for certain things. Now to the passage, and I'm just going to skim on these. He says they're to be without reproach, these, these men that he's to appoint, these men that we are to nominate and uh, uh, elect in, in our congregation. They should be without reproach. Now that's a, an umbrella term, and then he gives several particular areas how they're to be without reproach. But the phrase without reproach means not chargeable with some offense. In other words, this, this person is not perfect, but he, his life and his beliefs are consistent. There's a consistency there. And, and people outside the church and in the church don't accuse him of things, falsely accusing. Well, they'd have to be falsely accusing, but they don't see an inconsistency there. Now, this is important, above reproach. It is not saying that's how the man sees himself. Because most people who are above reproach see plenty of their own faults and don't see themselves, him or himself, as above reproach. This is how others see the person. And so he is above reproach. And now Paul gives specific areas where that should be true. First, in relationships, in verse 6. Marital relationships. He's to be the husband of one wife. Now, few phrases in the entire New Testament have provoked and generated such controversy through the years as this phrase. By the way, for those that today who may think that the Bible doesn't teach any gender differences or that marriage uh, can be redefined to be something other than between one man and one woman, this passage is problematic. Does this mean a man must be married in order to be an elder? 
That's one of the questions. What about a widower? What about someone who has a divorce in their past? What about a man who's never married? Well, we know the Apostle Paul was not married even when he wrote this, so we don't think that it means a man must be married. We know for sure it condemned polygamy, which was in existence in Paul's day by both Greeks and Jews. John Calvin said this, quote, expressly condemns polygamy. You say, well, we don't deal with that today. Give us time. We're not far off. Seriously. I was talking with an Anglican pastor friend of mine who believes in the scriptures, and we were talking about two months ago, and I forgot how it came up, but he was telling me that their church is very involved with the, the Anglican church in, in Angola, I mean in Uganda, and that there polygamy is practiced, and so when someone comes into the church with multiple spouses, then they, they've already had to deal with it nationally as a church. And here's their guideline. Let's say here's uh, this man, and he's got four wives and 20 children. And he's converted, and they're converted, and they come into the church. Then according to this, they will not allow this person to serve as a church officer, period, ever. But they can join the church upon profession of faith. They require then that the man only have physical relations with the first wife, the one he married first, but he's obligated to support the other wives and all the children from that point on. Now, they're trying to do the best they can in that culture. We could go on and on. I could go on and on about that. But we do know that this phrase means he's a one-woman man. He is committed unquestionably to his wife, if he's married. I don't think this excludes a single man from being serving because Paul wasn't married. He has an exclusive and unquestioned devotion to his wife. He's not flirtatious with other women. He, he doesn't say suggestive things where someone could question. What, where's he coming from? He's also above reproach in parenting. Uh, verse 6, uh, the third part of verse 6. He's to have children who believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. The Puritans had a wonderful observation. They said before man could pastor the big church, meaning a local church, he had to be able to pastor the little church, meaning the family. Before pastoring the big church, the man should be able to pastor the little church. Probably this area has, well, I've known men who have resigned from church office because of this area, or who thought seriously about it um, because of their families. Now, I want to clarify some of this because I think there's a misunderstanding. The point here is a man's not ready for the responsibility of the spiritual welfare and oversight of others if he's not willing to take responsibility for his own household. That's the issue. And it's important to note the wording. The Greek word for children here is little child little children, children in the home under their parents' authority. Now remember, in that day, a Jewish boy reached manhood around 14. So you can see there's a little bit of a cultural gap here. I'm not sure when we reach it in our culture anymore, if we ever do. But he's talking about children, and the point is, not to call each child in and question their profession of faith. 
That's not the intention. In fact, the word for believe here is faithful. Is the child faithful to the fact that they are being raised in the discipline and nurture of the Lord? Now, if you take this, I've known those of us that have had teenagers, one week I'm qualified, the next week I'm not. One week I'm qualified, the next week I'm not. That is not, I don't think that's the intent of this passage. It's talking about if you observe the man with the family, especially when the children are young, is he shepherding his family as opposed to just saying, well, I'll let the church do it or the school do it and I'm just hands off or is he just, is he, is he not care? Is he not engaged? Because if he's not engaged with his family spiritual welfare, he will not be engaged in the big church, according to the Puritans. Also to be blameless, blameless conduct, verses 7 and 8, and it mentions several areas. He's not to be certain things, he is to be certain things. He is not to be overbearing, quick-tempered, given to drunkenness, violent, pursuing dishonest gain. Those should not characterize this person's life. He should be hospitable, loving what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, now, is there anything in this list that should not be true of all believers? <laughs> you may say, oh, man, I, I like to lose my temper. I don't want to be a church officer. <laughs> no, it's, uh, this, this should be true of all believers. The qualification not to be uh, given to wine or a drunkard does not mean that, that if you're not a church officer, you can do that. Uh, no, it just means that these things should be especially true, especially true of a leader of believers, of a shepherd. Now, I don't know where I got this phrase, but I wrote it down, and I, I love it. It says, our lives as shepherds, including myself, we are to be incarnational demonstrations of the gospel. Incarnational demonstrations. This is all modeling. Everything we read here is that there should be an example of godliness. That's all it is. Ministry is modeling. Now, there are more things. There's oversight. There's instruction. There's teaching. But essentially, it's modeling. And our godliness should provide hope for God's people. It should be hope that transformation is possible. So the shepherds in the congregation should be the chief models, not of perfection, but of transformation as they allow people to watch them, watch us be changed by God's word through his Holy Spirit. Now in verse 9, he mentions the witness of leaders. They're to hold firmly to the trustworthy message that's been proclaimed. What message was that? Well, you go back up to the opening where it mentions in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised ages before. Uh, we're to be examples of depending on God's grace, not trusting in our own efforts, but strictly on his son who is our substitute on the cross who died in our place and because of his death... My sins being transferred onto him, and he was punished in my place. And he died a full death, spiritually, physically, and then he rose again that I will be resurrected with him. And now I'm co-seated with him at the right hand of the Father. That our trust is in that, and we hold firmly to that. And we will be encouragement to others. God's people need to see the gospel of grace worked out in the lives of, of spiritual leaders. Steve Brown in his book, What Was I Thinking, tells about this. I'm going to paraphrase what he said. 
He said, I remember when Sam came into my office, Steve Brown writes, confessing that he had stolen money from the city in which he was a city purchasing agent. It wasn't a lot of money, but if you steal $10, it's no less than stealing $10,000. Sam had lowered the price of a confiscated car that was being sold by the city. The price had started at $600, and Sam marked it down to $450 so he could buy it for his daughter. No one would ever have known had it not been for a major audit of city records and the fact that Sam was thrown in with some really big-time embezzlers who had taken money from the city for years. Again, the, the amount was not what was important. My friend was guilty, and he told me so. The next day, Sam's name was in the local newspaper, and three or four months later, he went to trial, and he was convicted. He was an officer in our church. And because we had so many new Christians, I asked if we could use Sam's story to teach them how Christians should deal with sin. Steve, Sam said, that would be my privilege. I would like what I have done to be of use to God's kingdom. It's a long story, Steve writes, and I don't have room to go into details, but the end of the story is something I must share. Sam resigned from the Board of Deacons, and during the entire process of his trial... When he was without a job and facing the horror of his shame, the entire church stood with him emotionally, financially, and spiritually. I'll never forget the scene after Sam was, along with the others, found guilty. The others held press conferences at which they proclaimed their innocence. But in the courthouse rotunda, a whole bunch of Christians surrounded Sam, placed their hands on his head, and prayed that God would be glorified through this sad episode. Many tears were shed amidst great joy that God was in charge. The day that Sam was restored to the board of deacons, our entire congregation applauded. Now, why do I read that? It's because I think what encourages you and me as God's people, it's not a person who acts like they're perfect, and it's not a person who has a lax attitude towards sin and obedience. It's a person whose life is demonstrating the transforming power of the gospel. And when we know that person is seeing that because they are dependent on God's grace. Now, when that is seen in a church, in church leaders, elders, deacons, people are encouraged. He's also, verse 9 says, to be able to refute opposers. It talks about in our house, entire households uh, being coming apart. And there's a responsibility. Now, I want to explain something to you that I, that I think anyone here that is, has served in, uh, as, a, as a shepherd in any sense in the church can relate to, but especially those of us that are elders. Church leaders have to perceive the depth of the needs of the members of our churches, and we share responsibility for those needs. I know of a pastor in a small church not too long ago where there were three cases of adultery over about a three-week period. In a small church, that can, that can, that can destroy the entire church in, in a short amount of time. Now, the pastor, and you're, you're going to wonder, where I, everybody at first service looked real puzzled at this. He could have separated himself and just passed the blame off to others, you know, to the ones who had participated in the sin. But instead, he asked, when these things happened, he asked, am I the problem? 
He asked himself that. And you may say, wait, what's that got to do with anything? Well, that shepherd, that pastor, was asking the same question that ought to be asked by all of us in in spiritual leadership, which is primarily modeling. Is there so little evident power of the gospel in my life that these people seek fulfillment elsewhere? In this case, through sinful means of adultery. Am I doing something wrong? Now, there's a balance there. People make choices. People are responsible for their own choices. Sin has consequences. And so in one sense, I, uh, me and, and shepherds have to say that's their choices. I can't do a whole lot about it. But as an elder, I must own the fact that if there is little evident power of the gospel in the lives of those of us who are spiritually responsible, then I know in some measure the problem's mine. And I have to own it. So it's not just their adultery, it's our adultery. I think that's part of what Paul meant when he talked about his burden for the churches and his concern for the churches when he listed that with all the trials and tribulations he had gone through. So I'm not denying others' responsibility for their own sin and rebellion. Nevertheless, sin in the lives of those in my spiritual care must remind me that my life is not all it should be. My commitments are not as fervent as they should be. My example is not what the congregation needs. My heart is not as tender as it could be. And that's going to come out in being any kind of faithful pastor, shepherd, elder, teacher, leader. So as an elder then, what should we do? Y'all still with me? Okay, I've kind of switched gears on you now just a moment ago. I moved away from the text. I'll get back to it in a moment. What must I do? What must we do? Shepherds, we must confess anew, daily, our need for forgiveness and cleansing and the Holy Spirit's filling. And then claim and proclaim its reality that God forgives our sins even as he forgives the sins of others. And his grace covers our sin and relieves us of the burden of our guilt. And when I realize that, then we serve him with greater joy, as Jim prayed in our pastoral prayer. Greater joy and strength that communicates the reality and the power of the gospel. So here is my summary. I didn't, I'm not, this is one of the rare things in one of my sermons I'm not quoting or paraphrasing from someone else. I wrote this, but I have to read it because I don't remember it. The local church is a group of sinners saved by grace who individually and collectively are becoming conformed to the image of Christ in their beliefs and in their actions. The church elders are appointed by the Lord Lord, to serve as examples of men experiencing the life-transforming power of the gospel. The result will be the encouragement of God's people and the refutation of opponents of the truth. So it's an exa- they ought to be examples of hope. They ought to give us hope as I'm watching this man, as I'm watching this person, and I see what they go through, and I see how they handle that. And it lets me know transformation is possible. I know I've used this far too many times over the years, but I, I can't find anything else that makes the point better. And it has to do with the four-minute mile. You that are young probably think that runners broke the four-minute mile back thousands of years ago. It wasn't that way. 
In fact, for thousands of years, runners tried to break the four-minute mile. Folklore has it, and I read this, that the Greeks experimented with all sorts of ideas to make runners go faster. One that humored me was that they tried drinking tiger's milk. Not the stuff that keeps you awake in the, the convenience store, you know, and <laughs> sounds like. But the real thing. But it did not work. Nothing worked. So it was concluded that it would be impossible, always impossible, for a human being to run a four-minute mile, four minutes or less. And for a thousand years, for over a thousand years, people believed that. They said our bone structure was all wrong. Wind resistance was too great. We don't have the lung capacity. A hundred reasons. Then one man, one single human being, Roger Bannister, proved that the trainers and the athletes and the doctors and the millions of runners before him, he proved all of those who had tried and failed were wrong. Now guess what? The year after Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile, the first man on record to do it, the very next year, 37 runners broke the four-minute mile. The year after that, 300 runners broke the four-minute mile. And sometime after that, there was a race in New York City. There were 13 runners competing in the race. All 13 broke the, Even the losing time was under four minutes. Well, what changed? Human bone structure? Great progress in wind resistance? Increased lung capacity? No. What changed was, what human, was human attitudes toward what was possible. That was it. Human attitude changed. Nothing else. Chip, we're talking about elders. I'm, stick with me. I think God has put elders especially, elders and deacons, in the local church for a number of reasons, but one of those is that we can look at them and say, transformation is possible. It is possible. How do you know? Because I've watched old Joe over there, and I've watched him for 15 years. And so I can know that human, that it's possible to be a growing Christian, a growing Christian who depends daily on the grace of God, because I've seen it. And I know it's possible to serve Christ with integrity in the marketplace when everybody else may, say, be, may be saying you can't be honest and make money today. I know, it's, I know it's possible because I've seen it. I know it's possible to have a Christ-centered marriage and family despite what everybody else says and to have a long-term marriage and we can say our vows for the rest of our lives and mean it. Why? Because I've seen it. I've seen it with these people, with these examples as God's, God's placed in our midst. And I know it's possible to press on toward Christ's likeness amidst all the trials and problems of life. I know it's possible. Why? Because I've seen it. That's why God, in his love and mercy for you, his children through faith in Christ in the local church, cares for you so much, wants the best for you that he puts elders and deacons in the local church. Let's pray together. Our Father, we know that we are made right with you only because of the work of Christ. It is by grace we've been saved through faith and that, that not of ourselves, not as a result of works that none of us should boast. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us individually, 
and corporately as a local congregation. We pray you might bless us by raising up good leaders, Christ-centered leaders, men who would model lives of integrity as we read about here in Titus and other places in the New Testament. Uh, We are dependent on you uh, completely. Protect us, provide for us, help us to be effective in mission, in the Great Commission to reach, uh, to serve as helping to reach uh, all nations with the gospel before you return. In Christ's name, amen.